Hi there, you're listening to the Steve Schramm Show, where we train Christians to become confident, passionate servants of Jesus so they can grow in their walk with God and share their faith more persuasively. Welcome to the show. Although it's not widely held by biblical scholars today, many are compelled to believe that the Bible teaches a view that would reconcile a recent view of humanity with an ancient view of the universe. There are numerous variations of this, but it's most commonly known as the gap theory. Some other names for it in the common uh, or popular or scholarly literature are the gap fact, the restitution theory, the Genesis gap, and the ruin reconstruction theory. I'd like to devote some time to a version of this, which has come to my attention quite recently, taught by pastor and Bible teacher James Knox. Now, I don't know anything about Knox, so I will do my best to refrain from any generalizations or unfair characterizations of his view. But that said, I did find the overall tone of his presentation a bit troubling. Probably worth teasing out for purposes of drawing on a greater lesson. He's a pulpiteer for sure. I mean, he comes across as confident, compelling, and well-argued. Unfortunately, I've found that a quick visit to each of his proof texts was enough to cast considerable doubt on his position. So I think there's a lesson to underscore here before moving any further. Test everything against the scriptures, no matter who says it. That includes me, especially me, because I want you to feel confident that you're getting accurate information when I speak. It's this very practice that actually earned the Bereans an eternal commendation in scripturated in Acts 17. A compelling presentation or convincing oration should not produce a higher level of confidence in our minds about its truthfulness, goodness, or validity. Now, if you're tempted to disagree with that, I would merely ask you to consider how one of the greatest orators of all time, Adolf Hitler, was also one of the greatest menaces of all time. Now, I'm not drawing a comparison between Knox and Hitler, don't get me wrong there, but his presentation sounds more compelling than I believe it actually is, if you listen. In fact, I want to be careful to separate this man himself from his claims, especially since I don't know him. He opens his presentation with a clear call to Christian unity and the message that he doesn't think this is an issue which should divide the church or even separate believers. And I believe he should be commended for that. We can certainly agree on that point. No need to break fellowship over this issue. However, I do find his exegetical claims wanting. So let's take a few minutes to explore them. And we'll do that first by looking at a summary, an overall summary of the gap theory, in particular respect to how he tends to hold it. And we're going to get to the proof text and everything in just a moment. Just hold tight. We're getting there. I'd like to provide this summary first so you kind of have a way to navigate through the conversation. So according to the gap theory, between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there's a nondescript amount of time in which at least three events happened. The creation and forming of the first earth, the fall of Satan and his being cast down to earth, and thus what they would say is the actual entrance of sin into the world. 
and the destruction of this first earth by some sort of watery cataclysm. Now, there are two general observations we should make right off the bat. First of all, this is not a view that's explicitly taught by any one particular verse or portion of Scripture. So in order to get to a view like this, um, proponents have to kind of peruse the Bible and piece it together by doing some exegetical math. Now, the practice itself of doing this is really probably not necessarily to be frowned upon. One could actually argue that this is exactly what New Testament writers needed to do when seeking to understand how Jesus was actually the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Hebrew scholar Dr. Mike Heiser has argued that this is what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 2.8. Had Jesus' arrival been made explicit in just one passage of Scripture, such that there would have been no mistaking him for who he really was, the princes of this world could have thwarted the plan. So the question is not in the validity of this practice itself, but rather whether or not the texts pressed into service for Knox's view will support his claims. And so if you want to just apply that to the analogy of Jesus we just made, the question is not necessarily, well, is it valid to search the scriptures and look for things that could point to Jesus in hindsight, now that we know um, the identity of the Messiah, but rather whether or not the texts that are actually pressed into service for that, such as Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, those are some easy ones to identify, um, will actually support the claim that Jesus was in fact this person. And I think that in the case of Jesus, that they do. The texts do in fact support those claims. So secondly, one is hard-pressed to arrive at this view of the gap theory, merely due to an honest examination of the text. In other words, this view was literally created and is most usually defended to reconcile the findings of modern science with obvious chronological details in Scripture. This is not a verse that is, um, or excuse me, this is not a view that is primarily exegetically driven, in other words. Now, I'm going to question the basis for the gap theory from the get-go, because I actually think we do have some really good evidence for a young earth from modern science. I, I do believe the Bible teaches a young earth, and I, I, I see the tension, I recognize the tension with some of the claims of modern science, but I also see ways around that tension, and I see that tension can be alleviated, especially with respect to a few disciplines. But this approach is an invalid starting point for any examination of the Bible. And you might wonder why that is. Well, it's because our goal is not to massage the words of Scripture and the findings of modern science together in order to form a nice fit. That's not how we approach an examination of the biblical text. Rather, it's to first understand the meaning of the text and then determine the implications of it independent of any other external kinds of evidence. So if those implications demand that we reject a certain theory of modern science, so be it. And if not, so be it. One of the issues in biblical studies has to do with systems, programs, and other spurious kind of machinations that are invented to support a presupposed paradigm. 
here's what I mean. If an idea does not work across scripture in general, it cannot be held consistently in part. Once you understand the real program, the story being told by scripture, one is hard-pressed to find something more out of place than the gap theory. An in-depth discussion of that particular program, what God really had in mind with the creation of the world, is a bit beyond the scope of this podcast episode, but you may find a useful resource in Dr. Michael Heiser's book, What Does God Want? Generally speaking, we find a busy world of forward motion, both in accordance with and in opposition to God's will from the very beginning of creation. In fact, you'll actually find the story cast in those exact terms. Scriptures such as Mark 10.6 and Mark 13.9, 2 Peter 3.4, and John 8.44. They all talk about this. They talk about the, w- the way things were from the beginning. So we have every indication that very soon after time started ticking, Adam was created and the story carries on. The story is one about creation, rebellion, redemption, most importantly, I think, both in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. But the nature of these events has actually been revealed to us in surprising detail. We don't know everything, but there's actually very little mystery as to the major events of history from the beginning of creation. And one problem with the gap theory is that it posits something rather mysterious, which the Bible only hints at in secure passages or in obscure passages, if it does hint to it at all. And it says that it was going on before the beginning of the creation that we know, the one that we know now. So how does such a thing fit within God's program? Well, gap theory proponents are going to argue that this is where we ought to place Satan's fall and judgment. But in fact, the Bible tells us very, very little about this incident, and what it does tell us cannot be used to demonstrate the gap theory, as I'm going to attempt to show you in just a little bit. Let's talk for a moment about the grammar of Genesis 1. I'm a fan of keeping things very simple, so I'm actually going to resume the discussion we were just having in just a moment. First, I'd like to spoil all of the fun and tell you the simple reason why the gap theory is not discernible from the text of Genesis 1 at all. Gap theorists must propose that there was this extensive block of time that should be placed between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And again, this would account for deep time, the long geological ages that scientists uh, tell us are a part of Earth history. The problem is that Hebrew grammar precludes it from being possible. I was surprised to find this specific argument left out of Knox's presentation, but stated or unstated, the grammar of these verses is quite crucial to his view. So do we have exegetical license to find a large gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Well, according to Hebrew and Old Testament scholar Dr. David Fouts, the answer to this is no. He's got a book, a great book I highly advise you to purchase. It's called Right from the Start. And he writes this. I'm going to quote a lengthy passage, but I think it will be valuable for you. 
The main verb of Genesis verse 2 is hayeta. This form from the root haya normally is understood as the stative verb to be. When translated actively, that is, as to become, the syntax often appears as the verb followed by the direct object, prefixed by the lamed preposition, as in 1 Samuel 22.2. He became, form of haya, followed by lamed, prince over them. Admittedly, when the lamed is absent, context can indicate the active nuance of to become, but such cases are unusual. Those who support the gap theory argue that the verb haita should be translated with the active sense and should also be understood as a past perfect or pluperfect in some grammars. In other words, it should be translated now the earth had become formless and void. One must concede that grammatically, the verbal form itself can go either as a simple past of the stative verb, now the earth was, or as the past perfect, now the earth had become. However, for it to be a past perfect, there must be the proper setting. In the proximate context, there must be a main verb in the past tense in order to indicate that the action of the past perfect chronologically precedes the action of the main verb. That is, some statement or event to which the past perfect provides a setting. Since this situation does not occur in verse 2, it cannot be the bara of the topic sentence in verse 1, bara simply means to create, which as we have seen stands alone, nor the initial verb of Genesis 1-3, which continues the narrative sequencing, the translation, now the earth had become, is not possible, close quote. Driving the nail further into the coffin, we must understand that the Hebrew language has a well-known indicator for the consecutive passage of time known as the Vav consecutive. We see such a sequence beginning with the days of Genesis 1 in verse 3. Not only is this form not present anywhere between verses 1 and 2, but we actually find, and this is interesting, a Vav disjunctive meaning there's an explicit temporal disconnection between these two verses. Dr. Jason Lyle writes in his book, Understanding Genesis, quote, Hebrew grammar disallows the possibility that something happens between verses 1 and 2. Namely, verse 2 begins with, and the earth, a Hebrew grammatical construction called a vav destructive. The construction occurs when a sentence starts with and, followed by a non-verb, such as a noun. The vav distinction indicates a break or interruption in the narrative. This is often for the purpose of providing additional information about what was previously stated. When used this way, it functions much the way we would use parentheses in English. It shows that verse 2 is a comment on verse 1. Verse 2 does not necessarily follow in time, but is a parenthetical description of the conditions of the earth that was mentioned in the previous verse. Thus, it is possible for something to happen between verses 1 and 2 because there is literally no time between the two. Now, let me just, um, and close quote, by the way, that quote is over. Let me just provide um, 
one kind of little caveat. Dr. Lyle is not a Hebrew scholar, and perhaps you noticed a little bit of difference in the way that his uh, ideas were worded versus the other guy, David Fouts. Dr. Lyle was dealing more with the English translations, Dr. Fouts more with the Hebrew itself. Dr. Lyle writes for more popular audiences, whereas the other book is more of a scholarly book. Um, and even though Dr. Lyle is not a Hebrew scholar, he's a well-argued theologian. He's got plenty of friends who are Hebrew scholars. And I found this particular quote to be pretty clear and instructive. So if you're looking for a credentialed scholar of Semitic languages, you can actually go to the show notes for this episode and you can find a list in footnote number three. Now, again, let me just summarize what these two individuals are saying. Dr. Jason Lyle, as we just saw, says that because the verse, verse 2, actually begins with a vav disjunctive, it's impossible for any time period to go between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Dr. David Fouts is dealing very specifically with the grammatical argument that the verse could be translated, now the earth had become form and void, and his argument ruled out the fact that that translation is not possible given the setting of the verb forms. So I hope you're getting the picture here. Gap theorists have identified one place in the entirety of scripture where the time they require could be placed, and it happens to be precluded on multiple fronts by Hebrew grammar itself. In my opinion, and in the opinion of most others, this alone is enough to silence the view, and it's the likely reason I cannot personally name one living Hebraist who defends this position. However, this is far from the only battlefield on which the gap theorists such as Knox wage war. In fact, much work is devoted to defending the gap theory from other portions of Scripture. Do those give us a reason to think that there's something to this view? Well, I want to take a look now at some of the persnickety proof texts that gap theorists wage war on, and particularly the arguments of Pastor James Knox. We'll deal now more specifically with the arguments that he made in the presentation I listened to. I was surprised to find that the first argument he makes, and frankly where he really digs in his heels, is the word replenish that you can find in some translations of Genesis 1.28. Cross-referencing with the usage of this word in Genesis 9.1, following God's destruction of the world via the Great Flood, Knox seems to think that the Genesis 1.28 reference requires that a similar previous destruction occurred, one that's obviously omitted from Genesis 1, resulting in a need to repopulate the planet. In fact, he digs in so hard on this point that I think it would seriously undermine his view if he were shown wrong. The fact is that the word male that is translated replenish in these verses simply means to fill. For the King James translators to use the word replenish here is not incorrect. In Old English, that's what the word replenish actually meant. So it's not as though the writer is meaning to telegraph that the earth is to be filled again due to a previous destruction, but merely that it is to be filled, period. And this is no surprise since God formed the earth to be inhabited, Isaiah 45, 18. 
But wait a minute now. One of Knox's arguments is that that very verse, Isaiah 45, 18, declares that God would not have created the earth in an unformed and unfilled state, as Genesis 1, 2 suggests. Remember, the language there says, without form and void. Well, let's look at that verse very quickly, Isaiah 45, 18. It says this, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Notice that in this passage, there's no sense of time whatsoever. If I were to paraphrase it, I might say something like this. God did not create the earth in vain because he formed it to be inhabited. Is this not precisely what we see in the creation account? God creates the universe and the earth and then proceeds to form it in order to be inhabited. So at most, this passage says nothing about when it was formed to be inhabited and cannot be used to form a positive argument for the gap theory. What's actually much more likely is that this verse is teaching a theological point about the supremacy of God on the basis of the details given in Genesis 1. The earth was indeed formed to be inhabited, but that does not mean that God poofed the earth into existence in a habitable state. Creation was a process, and it's a process that the Bible explains in quite vivid detail. Let's talk about another proof text, 2 Peter 3. It's specifically verses 3 through 7. Here's the account. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. Now, most scholars see this passage as declaring the ignorance of scoffers toward three events in earth history, the creation the flood of Noah's day, and the coming judgment. But Knox objects to this take. His reason? Well, the heavens were not involved in the judgment of Noah's day, but they are involved in the coming judgment mentioned. In order for the symmetry to remain, Knox argues that the world that then was, which perished by being overflowed with water, describes the otherwise nondescript judgment of the original creation proposed by gap theorists, such as himself, which must also have included the heavens. Right off the bat, my suspicion is that a Greek scholar would be able to detect a construction in the language or something like that that precludes this possibility. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, though, so I'm going to appeal to a few more practical considerations instead. First, this only works by assuming there was another time when the world was overflowed by water other than during Noah's flood. This is the only direct referent in Scripture we have to an event such as this. So therefore, this passage would have to be teaching us 
of another one, which hardly seems justified by the text. Second, it's not really clear to me that there must be further clarification by the text in order to preserve the analogy being made between judgment and uh, the first judgment and the second judgment, etc. It's not as though this is Hebrew poetry where parallels are going to depend upon individual words within a couplet or a doublet. Third, and finally, some have suggested that, in fact, the flood of Noah's day did have universe-wide consequences. Now, it's not a hill I would die on, and neither would Dr. Kurt Wise, but consider with me his thoughts on this as a well-trained scientist. In his book, Faith, Form, and Time, following a discussion of physical evidence, such as cratering, or, uh, excuse me, cratering on the moon, Mars, and the resurfacing of Venus, which may well be attributed to the events of the flood, he concludes this, quote, it is not impossible that the flood may have occurred as a result of God's changing some physical constant or constants of the universe. The sudden changes in radiometric decay rates suggested by some is consistent with this claim. If true, then the catastrophism in the days of Noah may have actually impacted not just the earth, but perhaps the entire solar system, even the entire universe. Could the dust of the solar system be the result of this catastrophe? How about asteroids? And what of exploding stars? There's opportunity for much young age creationist research and reinterpretation. Close quote. In my opinion, it's much more likely for there to have been universal consequences during Noah's flood than to think these verses are teaching us of an entirely different event that happened long before the creation of the world we now know. Others have argued that the words heavens were of old and the earth standing in the water and out of the water may be teaching the gap theory. But that's not at all clear to me. Most theologians who take these verses to be describing physical creation are convinced by the details in Genesis 1 that the earth was essentially created as a ball of water from which the rest of the land was formed. These verses are consistent with that view. And further, to say that the heavens are of old is not to say that they are billions of years old. That is not indicated by the text. At the time of the writing of that particular portion of scripture, the creation would be around 4,000 years old. That's pretty old. To read billions of years of time into that statement is just not sound. Let's take a look now at Job 22 and verse number 8. This is another verse that Knox presses into service for the gap theory. And if the evidence was not already wearing kind of thin, I think his take on this particular verse is um, especially difficult to believe. But let's take a look at it and we'll see what you think. Here's the verse in its context verses 1 through 11. So Job 22, 1 through 11. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God, as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for a fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great, and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught, and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. 
But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee, or darkness that thou canst not see, and abundance of waters cover thee. Now the context here very clearly indicates that Eliphaz, one of Job's, quote, friends, has launched into a withering critique of his past moral judgments and decisions. Eliphaz is moving from one event to the other, pulling stories from Job's life to help him make sense of the perceived awful injustice being done to him. For Eliphaz, Job is getting his just desserts. Now, the CSB translation of verses 7 and 8 is perhaps a bit clearer with respect to how verse 8 is situated in the story. To be clear, they're saying the same thing. I just think that this particular translation uh, excuse me, translation um, clarifies exactly the situation in the story a little better. It says this, you gave no, this is Eliphaz speaking to Job, okay? You gave no water to the thirsty and withheld food from the famished while the land belonged to a powerful man and an influential man lived on it. Okay, so that's the idea here. Strangely, Knox desires that we completely rip this verse out of context and see the mighty man as Satan and the honorable man as Adam. He claims that this verse teaches there was a time when only two people were on the earth, Adam, the honorable man who lived there, and Satan, the mighty man who had owned it, and that this could only be situated in history after the fall of Satan and the destruction of the old world. Of course, never once does the term mighty man refer to Satan or any other spiritual being in all of the Bible, at least not that I'm aware, nor does the context have anything to do with the events of or before creation. This is a blatant, not to say confusing, mishandling of scripture that must not be taken seriously. This verse describes a situation that was known by his friend Eliphaz, where Job apparently acted unjustly, perhaps for personal gain or something like that, during a time of drought and famine. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, you may be tempted to object to this understanding of the passage on the basis that Job was considered a righteous man. However, there are two big problems with this. First, it's the most sensible take on the passage in its context. If it doesn't mean what I've just described, it's hard to imagine what else it could. And frankly, it, it just can't mean what Knox thinks it does. Second, the Bible is clear that there are none righteous. In the Bible, it's never sinless perfection which garners the favor of God. Rather, it is believing loyalty in the face of opposition and temptation by intelligent evil forces like other gods, Satan, etc. Look no further than Noah, Abraham, or David for examples of men God counted to be righteous on the basis of their faith and on the basis of their believing loyalty to him, despite their moral failures. Isaiah 14 
is another verse that, or another chapter rather, that Knox uses. A scene from from this chapter in verses 12 through 20 seems to describe the fall of Satan from his position in Yahweh's divine counsel. Let me read to you the verses in question. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, every one in his own house. But thou art cast out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain thrust through the sword that go down to the stones of the pit as a carcass trodden under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. Knox argues that this entire event transpired prior to the creation of the current earth and heavens. He reasons that this must be the case, since that was the only time when Satan would have made the earth to tremble, and he would have shook kingdoms and destroyed the cities of the world, etc. Now, I have the space here to exegete this entire passage, neither will I claim expertise in prophetic language. However, Knox seems to have either missed or conveniently skipped verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. This verse seems to be describing the ultimate judgment and mockery of the one who is currently allowed rule and domain over the earth. Satan is, as it were, the lord of the dead. He wanted to be the most high, the lord of all. As a judgment, Yahweh, the actual most high, made him lord of the dead, those who die in sin. And there's lots here, but take a look at John 8, 44. This is one of many verses indicating that um, Satan and other intelligent evil forces have a current measure of control over the world. And let me make a more general point about the correct understanding of this passage, because I really think you need to get it. It's notoriously difficult to translate. Um, And in its full context, it deals with so much more than Satan and his future judgment. Um, It also deals with how he, and of course those who do his bidding, um, have power and control over the Gentile kings. The king of Babylon and Israel's exile is in view as well. The verses which follow the brief analogical shift in the passage to Satan's rebellion therefore have dual application to Satan himself and those who have reigned under his control, including the king of Babylon, indicating that this judgment is future, not past. And uh, just another way to kind of underscore that is just simply to say that this 
passage of scripture is describing multiple people at one time. It's describing most specifically in the context, the king of Babylon. But it is also in a kind of dual way describing Satan and his future judgment as well as kind of the person using the king of Babylon as his instrument. It's really a marvelous passage of scripture and I don't want to see it misused. And to to place this entire event as being something that only applies to Satan and rip it out of the context in which it finds itself and to place it before the creation of this world is just quite unjustified. And I don't think we should see the text in this way. Yahweh will eventually spell the final defeat of death, hell, and the grave and thus of their leader. Verse 15, therefore, indicates a shift in time. Okay, The events prior describe Satan's fall. The events posterior describe his coming judgment, after which time it will be absolutely accurate to say that Satan made the earth to tremble and shook kingdoms and destroyed the cities of the world through leaders such as the king of Babylon and others. Now, Knox claims that passages in Revelation and elsewhere claim that God was the administrator of the earth's trembling and the destruction of cities, and that therefore Isaiah 14 is describing work that Satan did prior to this creation. Now, again, I've already given pretty good reason to doubt that this was done prior to creation, that this verse has anything to do with that time period. Um, But again, this is specific to verses in Revelation that Knox appeals to. Now, he doesn't provide explicit references, unfortunately, so I'm not really going to deal with this point here, other than to say that if this were the case, it would still not rule out the possibility of the Bible attributing such destruction both to God and Satan. The Bible's clear that God uses the free will of both physical and spiritual forces to accomplish his purposes. It's not free will or God's sovereignty. It's both and. Let's move on to another passage, Jeremiah 4, 23. It's a well-known gap theorist proof text. The usual argument, the way they go about arguing this, involves an interesting phrase chosen by the writer, which seems to borrow language from the creation account. Remember, it's this motif of formless and void. Let me just read the verse for you. It says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. Now, this is an interesting one. Indeed, this is Genesis 1-2 language. Most interpreters rightly understand this passage to be describing the desolation of Israel by Babylon's forces. Thus, the gap theorist claims that the first use of this descriptive language in Genesis 1-2 also describes a state of destruction. However, Knox takes it even further. He wants to say that Jeremiah 4.23 is not merely an analogy. It's the writer's very description of the original world's destruction. Now, he's convinced of this view in part due to language found in verses 25 and 26. Let me read that to you. I beheld, and lo, there was no man. And all the birds of the heavens were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. 
In Knox's explanation of the passage, he actually incorrectly mentions that most scholars date the events of this passage to the time of the tribulation. He even goes so far as to mention that the language, there was no man, would not fit this time. There's no indication, he rightly concludes, that the tribulation is associated with total annihilation. However, what most scholars believe this passage to be about is actually the condition of Israel after Babylon's invasion, as we briefly mentioned earlier. So what should we make of these claims? Well, let's take them in reverse. So first of all, it might be fair to say that the language of total annihilation does not apply to the Babylonian invasion either. That's a fair point. What's interesting is that language is baked into the passage, though, to guard against taking it too literally and actually to guard against making that very mistake. Here's verse 27 with a little bit of emphasis from me. For thus hath the Lord said, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. God's clear in communicating that, yeah, the land will be made desolate, but he's equally clear in communicating that a full end will not be made of Israel. This serves as a reminder that poetic and prophetic passages can easily lead to incorrect conclusions if pressed for a sort of wooden literalism. So what do verses 25 and 26 intend to communicate? Well, I think what the writer is telegraphing is a metaphorical description of the desolation. It's no mistake that the language of creation is used here. That's actually very intentional. The writer means to convey that the punishment against Israel for leaving her God will be so severe that it will be as though it were an undoing of creation. The unformed and unfilled nature of the land, the absence of light, the fleeing of the birds, these are all meant to picture a devastation so thorough it will be as though the world had never been formed and filled. Given the clear context of this passage, to rip verse 23 out of its context and see it as describing the condition of an old creation prior to God's creating our current world is entirely unjustified. But secondly, what about the view that one can read this language of destruction, again from verse 23, back into the creation account? It's important to consider two things, um, the meaning of the words and the context of the words. The expression in question here is tohu wabohu, without form and void. What do these words mean? Respectively, they mean unformed and unfilled. Note that these words do not on their own denote destruction, though. It's apparent from their use in this passage that they can be used to picture a scene of destruction, for sure. However, it's always context that determines meaning, and we have to consider whether the use of this expression in the creation account is intended to signify a state of destruction. Since the words don't carry this connotation on their own, and there's no reason from the context of Genesis 1 to suppose that there was a deconstruction of an old world going on, there's no reason to import this meaning from Jeremiah 4 into their meaning in Genesis. And as another corollary, it kind of depends on this whole idea that the Hebrew grammar will allow for this, now the earth had become without form and void kind of translation, and we've already seen that the Hebrew grammar will not allow for that. So on this particular connection, John MacArthur writes the following, quote, What was once a fruitful land had become a wilderness, verse 26. It was a wasted, devastated place without any inhabitants. It had lost its former beauty. 
it didn't have any form. It didn't have any beauty. It had reverted to a state of barrenness that reminded Jeremiah of the state of the earth in the beginning before God's creative work had formed it into something beautiful. Isaiah borrows the same expression, prophesying the destruction that would come in the day of the Lord's vengeance against the Gentiles. He says their land will be turned into desolation. He shall stretch out over it the line of confusion, tohu, and the stones of emptiness, bohu, Isaiah 34, 11. That pictures God as the architect of judgment, using a plumb line of tohu, which is kept taut by weights made of bohu. So these words speak of waste and desolation. They describe the earth as a place devoid of form or inhabitants, a lifeless, barren place. It suggests that the very shape of the earth was unfinished and empty. The raw material was all there, but it had not yet been given form. The features of the earth as we know it were undifferentiated, unseparated, unorganized, and uninhabited. Close quote. That was from John MacArthur, The Battle for the Beginning. As with the examples before, we see that Jeremiah 4 simply cannot support the exegetical weight demanded to prop up the gap theory. All right, now we need to investigate kind of a, a um, uh, amalgamation of points that Knox makes, and it's going to deal with Genesis 1, Ecclesiastes 3, and the distinction between create and made that we find in in the early chapters of the Bible. So our final examination of Knox's proof text will find us where it all began, back at Genesis 1, with some help from a supporting question he raises in Ecclesiastes 3. Let's look there first. In verse 15, Solomon writes the following, That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been, and God requireth that which is past. Solomon uses this sort of cryptic language often in the book of Ecclesiastes. It seems that verse 15 harkens back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath already been of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Now, with this verse in mind, Knox asks a rhetorical question. Are we to believe that God sat in darkness for a bazillion years until he decided to do something 6,000 years ago? Now, for the record, um, I'm not willing to affirm that this verse is even remotely related to the question that Knox raises here. Uh, I don't think it is, but he raised it. So I will do my best to interact with the arguments here. All right, so here again, it, it seems that all this verse means to communicate is a theological point. This time around, it's the timelessness of God. All humans are subject to the limitation of time, but God is not. History repeats itself for us, but God knows the end from the beginning. Ironically, assuming I'm right about the meaning of this passage, it actually undermines the point of Knox's rhetorical question. Knox, by his own admission, cannot fathom that God would sit around for billions of years twiddling his thumbs. I can't imagine that either. Well, his solution, of course, is to say that God indeed created billions and billions of years ago and even endured through a creation entirely unknown to us, save for its destruction, of course, according to Knox and company. But this 
represents a giant misunderstanding about the nature of God and the nature of time. As humans, we can only interpret our experience in the context of temporal reality. But God is not bound by such constraints as this verse and some other verses teach. For example, you can see Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 2 verse 8. In fact, something that I have actually written on before, um, one of the most prominent views of the relationship between God and time is that God enters into time himself, but only upon his creative act. So one who believes the universe is merely 6,000 years old is not faced with any sort of conundrum. No scenario where God twiddles his thumbs for countless eons is necessary to explain because no such scenario exists. The spiritual realm is not bound by the passage of time. And even 13.8 billion years is a mere twinkling of an eye when compared to eternity. To even speak in such terms is just to misunderstand the concepts of God's timelessness, eternity, and self-existence. Ironically, then, the scenario that Knox describes is only problematic for the person, such as himself, who affirms that the initial creative act was so long ago. Knox ends his presentation with a return to Genesis 1:29 and following. He settles into verses, um, or excuse me, chapter two, verses one through three, and derives a common argument from them, which trades on a distinction between the words "created" bara and "made" asa. Here are the verses: Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God in- ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. His claim is that these words have an important distinction in the kind of creative activity that is taking place. The claim is that bara indicates creation out of nothing, and asa indicates the forming of what has been previously created. Knox wants to say that we find nothing being created in the account until God begins populating the creation with life, suggesting that all work prior to the creation of new life was merely forming that which was already created. Now, there are a few problems with this. First of all, if this were the case, it's not clear why it would be a problem. Many do think that God's um, initial creation was the only one that was ex nihilo, while the work that followed was merely the formation of the previously created materials. So this idea itself does not require that the initial creative act was billions of years ago. It could simply be that God created and then subsequently formed beginning the next day. However, most Hebraists agree that the words bara and asa are actually synonymous and can be used interchangeably. And we don't even have to look any further than the creation account itself to see this in action. Consider verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. As the editors of the Faith Life Study Bible correctly note, 
Quote, the Hebrew verb used here, bara, is the same word used in Genesis 1.1. However, the plural declaration, let us make, in verse 26, uses a different verb. The verbs for make, asa, and form, yatsar, are also used elsewhere with bara to refer to God's work as creator in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 2, yet another verb is used for the fashioning of Adam, yatsar. These verbs are synonymous, close quote. Additionally, the very verses used by Knox to support this claim, Genesis 2, 1-3, actually undermine his point. He thinks that the phrase created and made indicates two different categories of action by God. But since we've already seen they are synonymous, the parallel is likely in place merely to underscore the point that God alone does the forming making, and creating out of nothing. For the exegete who would wish to double down on this point, I'd simply ask what we should make of Exodus 20, verse 11, which says, For in six days the Lord made Asa, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. If we pressed Knox's point, we'd be forced to conclude that God merely formed the entire creation, having never created ex nihilo. Obviously, that point does not work. It's not relevant to Knox's point, but there's an awesome distinction between bara and any other word describing the processes of creation and formation. A cruise throughout the Hebrew Bible will reveal that only one being is ever the subject acting on the verb bara, Yahweh. This means that while lots of beings, both physical and spiritual, can form and make things, only Yahweh is powerful enough to create them out of nothing. This is the true and really the important distinction between these words. Man, what a God we serve. So in this discussion, wrapping up now, we've noted some reasons why the gap theory should not be considered a viable interpretive option for the reader attempting to find millions or billions of years between the pages of Scripture. Along with an obvious lack of place for this motif within God's larger program and a grammatical construction or two that will not even allow for its insertion, we've examined and found wanting alleged proof texts which are unable to sustain the burden of supporting this view. Thank you so much for listening to yet another week of the Steve Schramm Show. Listen, if our material blesses you, you can actually help directly sponsor the creation of new free content just like this for as little as a dollar per month. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform where you can actually go and support people who are creating content that you love, since a lot of times they're not selling products, and we do have a couple products for sale, but um, this is where you can kind of support that ongoing creative work and the needs that arise as a result of needing to study and needing to have the technology and everything to make this possible. It's a tried and true platform. It's being used by many these days. It's totally secure, and I would invite you to check that out. There are some really awesome benefits for becoming what's called a patron of the ministry. You can go to patreon.com slash SWSRAM to see that, or I will give you a link there in the notes of the show at the very bottom that you can 
check out to go see what it might look like to support us and what benefits you would get. One of those benefits at the $10 level will be any audiobooks from this ministry. To be a patron of the ministry is the only way you'd be able to get the audiobooks, so I would highly encourage you to check that out if that's something you might be interested in. God bless you. I love you. We'll see you on the next one.